For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, The Unleavened Bread of Heaven. Mr. Steele. Thank you, Reg. Hello. What a beautiful day, beautiful holy day season we're having so far. I would just like to say thank you to everybody that worked so hard for us to have the meal here last night. Thank you very much for all your work. Especially a shout out to Doyle for all of his hard work that uh, sometimes goes under the radar, so we really appreciate that. For those of you that don't know this, and I'd be surprised if you didn't know this, but I have a sister-in-law who makes very yummy cupcakes. <laughs> Fantastic cupcakes. I don't think she's even in here right now. And for those of us who are blessed to live next door to this cupcake maker, we, uh, we have to, well, we have to do our part. We have to help test the products. The warm, soft, gooey, full of leaven <laughs> cupcakes. And we have to, to test out with the guinea pigs for the new flavors. And it's a sacrifice, but... Somebody has to do it. It's our, it's our Christian duty, don't you think? I think so. So in spite of having to maybe occasionally spend a little extra money, you know, letting out the pants and, and things like that, it's a real blessing to, to be able to enjoy those little treats every once in a while. In fact, I just had one the other night, a few nights ago, before, you know, the last clean, don't worry. A new flavor, very tasty. You see, Chrissy's cupcakes are amazing. And when something's amazing or really enjoyable, we sometimes also say that they are heavenly, right? Ooh, that was heavenly. The food at that restaurant was heavenly. Or even we apply that to some singers, perhaps, and, and their harmonies, and they're just, so, they were angelic, they were heavenly. Well, as we know, there is a food that is heavenly. There was a food that was heavenly. And all the people of Israel had to do was to go outside of their tents, outside of their tabernacles, and pick it up off the ground. Just pick it up. I mean, we think we have it good when we can go online and order at Walmart and then, then have it loaded up in our car when we pull up, right? You guys tried that yet? This is better. It's right outside your tabernacle. Now, you have to live in a tabernacle, not a, not a house, so there's some drawbacks there. But it was just provided for them. Provided right there. And you could just go out, gather enough for that day, 
for what you needed for that day for the number of people that was in your house. A gift. You make bread with it. And I don't know, maybe, maybe they made cupcakes too. I'm not sure. We read about it in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 11. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so it was that quails came up at the evening and covered the camp. And in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. And so when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, Manna, what is it? What is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread. If you look at that word, that bread, it it implies more than just this is bread. This is your staple. This is the bread. This is what we're going to eat and live on. It's not just a, a nice thing to have with a piece of toast and you go have something else. This is the staple. This is the meal. A staple of life, if you will, which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons. And let every man take for those who are in his tent. And it's interesting, isn't it, that right here is really a, a divine instruction that men should be doing the grocery shopping. <laughs> Who's up for that? My wife's up for that. Ron already does it, I think. Maybe some of you guys do too. If I were to do it, I would come back with all kinds of yummy things that had no nutritional value whatsoever. So we're probably better off the way we do it in our house. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some, some more and some less, so that when they measured it by omers, he who had gathered much had nothing left over, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, Let no one leave anything of it till the morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. Well, that was a surprise. Because Israel were so good at following instructions, weren't they? And that is, of course, a little bit of sarcasm. Some of them left part of it till the morning. And it bred worms and stank. And I don't know, you probably couldn't have hidden the fact that you left it till morning. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it just melted away. Miracles inside of miracles. That the, the, the manna that you gathered for today, if you left over tomorrow, would stink. And yet the manna that was out on the ground just disappeared and didn't just remain till the next day. Layers upon layers of miracles. God's grace just showered down on them. Dropping down into Exodus 16.31, it says, 
the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was uh, like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And so the bread of heaven came down on the camp of Israel every day except for the Sabbath and the holy days, right? There was always a day of preparation before, and that would last throughout that holy day, that Sabbath. Every day. And it, it, it's likely that this is the longest running miracle in history. Forty years. Forty years. Every day supplying this daily bread. And God had, had to supply it. He had to give it to Israel for that, for that period of time because they were going to be a transient nation, right? They were going to be a migratory people just moving around. They could not plant crops. They could not harvest in the way in which other nations around them did that. They were solely reliant on this bread from heaven. And they were going to be that way for an entire generation. These people were not going to settle in the promised land. How sad that must have been when they realized they were not going to settle in the promised land because they didn't enter when he commanded them to. When God said, let's go, let's go take it, they didn't enter. And they were so close, so close. They didn't have faith. And so God continued to feed them so that the promises of God to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob so they could still be fulfilled, because if not, they would starve in the wilderness. And as God threatened, right, he would have to restart this whole plan with Moses. Moses was not up for that. So, God's grace saved them. And his continual grace for 40 years fed and sustained a people. Until, until that new generation, as we know, until that new generation were prepared and ready to enter the promised land. Like I said, such a lost opportunity, so close. What a chance. That had never been presented to any people in the history of the world to move within less than a year from being abject slaves to being a free people in their own land, and they didn't take it. Wow. A lost opportunity. So every morning, God gave grace in the form of manna. But as soon as they entered the promised land, as soon as that next generation did enter the promised land, what happened? Do you remember? As soon as they entered the promised land, that bread of heaven ceased, at least that version of it. Turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 16 and verse 33. We're going to just learn a little bit more about, about manna, the importance of it. It says, Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord. 
to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. Uh, yeah, until they came to an inhabited land, and they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. So there it is, the bread of heaven, the manna, sent down and fed the children of Israel for 40 years. But as we know today, today is not the first day of the festival of manna, right? This is the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. So what does manna have to do with any of this? What is it? What is manna? What, it, what has it to do with unleavened bread? After all, it's really just a flour substitute, right? It's a flour substitute. It could be ground down and used as flour. And I was thinking about it too. It, it's really interesting, considering the fact that you could only keep today's supply for today. Did that mean they had unleavened bread mostly for 40 years? Because you couldn't take a starter, right, for the next day, because you couldn't leave it for the next day. Now, maybe you could stick it out over here, and some yeast might get onto that and knead it a little bit, and naturally. But it wouldn't be the kind of bread that we're used to. And it wouldn't have been the kind of bread that they were used to in Egypt. You could, by all accounts, just treat this manna as flour. But there's much more to the point of manna. The bread of heaven converges with something else. It converges with the festival of unleavened bread. And it converges at least twice at least twice. In Exodus chapter 12, we've studied many times before, we're introduced to the idea of unleavened bread as the bread of affliction, the bread of haste because of the speed in which the Israelites were about to and then did leave Egypt. In verse 1 of chapter 12 we read, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. And it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Then in dropping down into verse 6, he says, Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the, the, the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted with fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. And what remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire, and thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So shall you eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And this, of course, is the first Passover. It was that moment 
when God was going to redeem Israel, and we've, we've gone over that many, many times. He's going to redeem Israel from the Egyptians. Take them away to the promised land, as we said before. And as we know, that was a, a massive event. And sometimes we, we, we forget that. But we can look at all the things that have changed in the world because of this event, because of Passover. Even today, even today in this country, far removed from the land of Israel, right? And yet, even maybe corrupted, there's a concept of Passover in all of these Christian churches. In fact, the English language seems to be the only place where it's not called Passover, unfortunately called Easter. But still, the influence of Passover is still here. It's still in our world. The Christian world recognizes the importance of Passover and its symbolism. But more than that, it was a world-changing event because it, it pronounced the birth of a new nation that was going to explode into the land of Canaan and did ultimately, after a delay, explode into the land of Canaan. And what did that do? Well, all of that changed the dynamics of the region. They were going to displace peoples that were already there. They were going to change the interactions between empires. They were going to interact and influence Babylon and Assyria and Egypt. There is so much that Passover began and started to influence. In fact, Egypt itself went into a period of decline. And in spite of the naysayers, if you look at the new chronology as proposed by David Rowell, and I think I've mentioned him before, you'll see how perfectly that new chronology aligns with what happened in the Bible. Egypt went through a period of decline, losing the Israelites as a, as a workforce. So God knew all of this. He knew the importance in, in the, the geography of the region. He knew the importance in the history of mankind. And of course, the symbolism of the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And that of itself changing everything for the future of man. Passover is a big deal. And we sometimes forget that. It is a big deal and will continue to be a big deal. So right up front... God institutionalized the observance of Passover, the memorialization of Passover, reinforcing it over and over again. In Exodus 34 and verse 18, he says, The feast of unleavened bread you shall keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, in the appointed time of the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. And again in Deuteronomy 16 and verse 8, Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God, and you shall do no work on it. But again, what does unleavened bread have to do with manna? How do they come together? Well, like I said before, there are at least two convergences of this of unleavened bread, the Passover season, and manna, the bread of heaven. 
The first one we find in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 10. It was the end of the 40 years. And 40 years later, Israel was finally at the point where they were before, ready, right after leaving Egypt, to enter the promised land. Back to where their fathers had been a generation earlier. And it says, Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate the produce of the land on the day after Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the, same, on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. And that of itself must have been a monumental change for these people. There was an entire generation that grew up, well, doesn't everybody go outside and get manna? It just was the way life was. And now it was gone. Significant change. What are they going to do now? They had to learn. And of course, God was there to provide for them. The bread of heaven, the manna ceased when they entered the promised land. But they were able to begin eating of the land, eating the fruit that God promised. The first year was pretty good. Somebody else planted it. But then the next year, and the next year and the year after that, they now had to work. They had to do something different. They actually had to prepare the ground and plant the seeds and work for their food, work for their bread. But God was still going to feed them. He promised them. He promised that if they followed him, if they obeyed him, that he would bless them and they would just be running over with harvest. Them anyway, even though they oftentimes didn't obey and they weren't faithful. And it's interesting, this transition happens during the Passover season, during the time of unleavened bread. But there is an even more remarkable convergence of these two things between the bread of heaven and the unleavened bread. And in many ways, I think we're really just scratching the surface of the depth of these symbols. We get our first hint, in fact, a building message, more than a hint. Jesus really starts to bring home exactly what he was saying about who he was and what he was here to do. In John chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, After these things... Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, <coughs> and then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with the disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Interesting again, isn't it, that it's around Passover time. It's important to keep that in mind. And it says, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread um, that these may eat? But this he said to test him, 
for he himself knew what he should do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for him, for them. Every one of them to have a little? Are you crazy? We got, we've got no place to get bread like this. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here with five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there, were as much, uh, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, and the number of them was about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise to the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore gather them up, and they filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. And then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Powerful example. And there is so much symbolism in here. These different elements. The first that jumps out is the number five for the loaves. That number representing grace. So at the very beginning, Jesus has grace on these people. Feeding, again, 5,000. Grace multiplied. And Jesus uses just a small amount of bread. And so there's something else. And I find this really fascinating. And the order is a little different, but you remember back when Israel was complaining? We don't have any food. We're going to starve out here in the wilderness. God says, you are going to eat meat, and you're going to eat bread. And he performed a miracle. And he sent them quail, and he sent them manna. Here, Jesus said, you're going to eat meat, and you're going to eat bread. And he multiplied the loaves and the meat instead of quail, is fish. But nonetheless, it's very similar, isn't it? There's that analogy there. That's symbolism. Jesus did those kinds of things. He's making his case with his miracles, with his actions. This whole experience, as we'll see, sets the context for one of the most powerful of Jesus' sermons. Continuing on in verse 15, John says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into the boat, and they went over the, uh, the sea towards Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. And then the sea arose uh, because of the great wind that was blowing, and there was a storm coming in. And so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And then they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they willingly received him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. 
Does that remind you of some other experiences that the children of Israel had with the sea? Another symbol, arcing back to when Israel left Egypt. Now again, the order here is different. But this time, instead of the miracle of the parting of the sea, Jesus just walks on the sea. And the wind is blowing and howling. And he gets in the boat, and he takes them across the sea. And they're suddenly at the other side where they were going. They were carried by the same God that guided Israel through another sea. Interesting elements that reflect very strongly with the crossing of the Dead Sea, of the Red Sea. And of course, it was the same person in each case. Then in John 6, beginning in verse 22, we really start to see this convergence between the bread of heaven and unleavened bread. John 6, 22, John says that on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no boat there except the one which the disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got onto the boats <coughs> and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered, to, answered them and said, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now there's a lot there, but are you serious? There's been miracle after miracle after miracle, and they still want another sign. Another sign. He just fed 5,000 of them. 5,000 of them. He was transported over to this other place, and they knew he didn't have a boat to get there. How many miracles did they need to have faith? To have faith in who he was. Like I say, he traveled across the sea without a boat. He had been healing people of all kinds of sicknesses before that. And yet they wanted more. They wanted a miracle like the bread of heaven. Like manna. And I suppose in a certain sense you can't blame them because a lot of life was spent earning either enough money or making your food grow. <coughs> Subsistence living, very common. And so the idea of manna coming down from heaven and you just go outside and scoop it up, 
Who wouldn't want that again? Of course they would want that again. Not having to worry about food. Not having to worry about how you're going to feed your children. But Jesus was trying to get them to look up. He was trying to teach them the deeper lesson. He gave all of this miracle to get their attention and they were still focusing in the wrong place. Focusing on the ground instead of on Jesus. To focus on higher things, on eternal things. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. And that's an interesting phrase. Because you can almost read it and say, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. That was me. But then there's another way of reading it and saying, that wasn't the bread of heaven. I'm the bread of heaven. Right? He says, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Just what a hope that is. What a blessing that is. You know, especially at this time of introspection and we, we kind of evaluate ourselves before Passover and we maybe find ourselves insufficient. Jesus says, I will not cast you out. If you are drawn to me, the Father draws you to me, you are mine. I will not cast you out. Hold on to that promise. <coughs> For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given to me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Everlasting life. Jesus is plainly speaking. He's getting more and more bold with who he is and what he is doing. He couldn't have been more plain. He was comparing himself to the manna. But more than that, as he would do with Passover, he was starting to do here with manna. He was superseding manna. He was superseding that old tradition that they were still focused on. If we could just get that back, we would be happy. No, no, no. This is the bread of eternal life right here for us to eat, to bring into ourselves. He is the bread of heaven. And the obvious connection with the resurrection, that he was saying that he was the Savior, the Messiah. They struggled with this. They knew Jesus... You know, they, they knew his parents, they knew his family, they knew where he grew up. How could he be the manna sent down from heaven? How could he be that bread of heaven? It says, and the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which has come down from heaven. And they said, 
Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then, and he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Don't murmur amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, They shall be taught by God. Therefore everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven. Pointing to himself. This is the bread. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So we just celebrated our Passover. As Curtis mentioned earlier, Christ, our Passover. We believed didn't we? Isaiah asked us that question. He said, who has believed our report? We believed. We believed Isaiah. We believed Matthew and Mark and Luke. We believed the apostles. We believed Paul. We believed that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is our Passover lamb. That he is the bread of heaven come down for us to eat through which we are made alive. And I don't know if you've ever put this together, but remember the manor was called the bread of affliction? Remember that? We can see that in Christ Jesus. He was that unleavened bread. He was that bread of affliction. We see it in Isaiah 53. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by his stripes we are healed. He is that bread of affliction. He is the unleavened bread. He was that fullest manifestation of the bread of affliction. The convergence of unleavened bread and the bread from heaven. Continuing in John, he says, The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate, in the manor, ate of the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. And he's just reiterating it over and over and over again, trying to get them to understand. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. This was not easy for them to hear. 
You know, you think about it. What is this, some strange cannibalism thing? You know? I mean, cannibalism is pretty strange of itself, but he's inviting us to eat him. It's just, it's hard to hear. Hard to hear. But if they tried to understand the symbolism, they could clearly accept it. They could clearly accept what the Father was revealing to them. He said, therefore, many disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about it, he said to them, does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man descend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. And that's the explanation right there. That it is the words, the words that are spirit. They are the bread manifested in Christ Jesus. Yes, he was going to give of his body. Yes, he was going to give of his blood. But what he was asking us to do was consume his words. Eat that bread. So Jesus is trying to get to that truth, trying to get them to understand that it's spiritual, not physical. There's no goofy transformation of the bread into his flesh transubstantiation. What a crazy idea. That is not true. Because Jesus right here said, I speak to you. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. It's a spiritual consumption of his body. We are to spiritually eat the unleavened bread, the unleavened, sinless life of Christ. Consuming that as our own spiritual manna. How do we do that? How do we do that? Now, I've heard plenty of sermons, plenty of sermons, and you, you know, you, you're desperately wanting to have a closer relationship with the Father and with Jesus, and to have better faith and stronger faith, and to improve, to walk in that newness of life. And then all they say is, well, study your Bible. Well, okay. Thanks a lot. Because again, we're just like the Israelites. We, we're looking for us. Well, we want something bigger. And Jesus is saying, no, it's right here. It's very simple. It's what I've been trying to tell you all along. Jesus continues. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. I mean, when you stop and think about that, that's shocking. That they, they just gave up after everything they saw. Okay, you don't quite understand this, but stick it out. <laughs> After all of you've, what you've seen, you can't just stick it out? Give it time? He lost followers over this. It was too hard for them to take. 
Jesus was the convergence of the bread of heaven and the unleavened bread of Passover. And then Jesus says to the twelve, maybe with a little sadness, are you going to leave me as well? Are you going to leave me? But Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where do you expect us to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Where's he going to go? What else is there? And we've all come to that moment, haven't we? This life may be difficult at times. And, and, and at times we're pressed down and we want to give up. But we remember the words of Paul and we just move on and we keep working on and keep consuming and eating the body, the spiritual words, the spiritual flesh of Jesus. And that's the vital part. The vital part of how we eat his, his body and drink his blood. We consume his words. We do that now, but we need to do that every day. Remember back when the children of Israel were told, okay, go gather the manna. They were told to gather how much sufficient for the day. And then you remember again when Jesus said, this is how you pray. Give us this day our daily bread. So what we studied yesterday was for yesterday. The words that we consume today are for today. We have to consume more of the words of Jesus tomorrow for tomorrow. Right? Starting the day as Israel did. Maybe we could do that. Maybe we could use this period of time of of unleavened bread, you know, we, we have this special bread, right? And it's interesting, lots of times we, we kind of think, well, unleavened bread, it's a symbol of putting leavening out of our lives. It's actually not. We already did that. We did that before. It's a symbol of putting unleavened bread in our lives. And so we could use it as a jumping off point. Maybe we haven't been as dedicated to, to study and reading the word of God and applying it in our lives. Maybe we could do that today. Starting tomorrow. When we get up and we get our cup of coffee or a cup of tea. Take a little piece of unleavened bread. What if we were to just break that? You can put some butter on there if you like it that way. But we were to break that. Pray over it. And as we eat it. Eat some of the words of Jesus. Right? Some of the Beatitudes. Seriously, the words of Jesus. A red letter Bible, maybe? And we go through his words. Of course, the entire scripture is his words. But use that as a way of, what do we call it now? A reboot, right? Reboot our spiritual diet. Consuming the physical to help us, to help us apply the spiritual. To eat of that bread of heaven. Read his teachings. Read his admonishments. 
eating a piece of unleavened bread while eating spiritually a piece of the true bread from heaven. We could do that for the next seven days. What would happen? How much more encouraged would we feel? How much stronger would we feel? Healthier. We eat because we need it to live. Our spiritual new creature in Christ, we need to eat so that we can continue to live. Like I say, perhaps it could serve as part of that covenant renewal that we talked about on Thursday night. A reboot. In Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22, it says, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Words of the Lord, new every morning, if we were to just do that. Like that manna, we just go out, just waiting for us to pick it off the ground every morning. Just as Israel was, so are we. We are sojourning, aren't we? We're sojourning in the land of promise in so many ways. We're sojourning yet also in a spiritual wickedness that we see getting more and more wicked every day. Every day. And you see, like Israel, we have not entered into the promised land. We're not there yet. We haven't entered into the kingdom of God. It's not here yet. We still need to be fed daily, just like the children of Israel, with the bread of heaven. We are told to pray for it. We need to feed on that bread of heaven. So that when it's time, if we feed on that spiritual bread, when it is time, when Jesus at long last appears, as that at Joshua, that true Joshua, when he leads us into the promised land, we will have the strength to fight. We'll have the strength to claim the land in the kingdom of God. And I wonder, what will be our bread then? What will we eat when we enter that heavenly country? It could be more of the same could be something else. I'm sure it's going to be a whole bunch of new words of Jesus, right? New words, new bread. I don't know for sure. None of us can. But we will, I do know this, we will all gather around Jesus' feet. We will cast our crowns before him. There will be joy and gladness like we have never experienced in our entire life. All our loved ones will be there with us who have died in the faith. And there will be bread and there will be wine. And I suspect that we will hear Jesus say, once again, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with all of you, with all of us. At long last, he will raise his glass and drink with us again.